for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. You're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, ladies and gentlemen, all right, welcome to the broadcast Monday to Friday. We're here live on TNT, today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you for joining us for the next two hours. We're going to line up some news, some analysis little bit of entertainment, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek perhaps, maybe in the second hour. We'll see. We've got some serious guests on, however, uh, and we're going to be joined hopefully in the first hour by our friend, journalist, and State Department correspondent, Sam Husseini. He's going to be joining us from Washington, D.C. with an update on what's going on on the foreign policy front in Washington with the White House, but also uh, how the progress is going on the invocation of the Genocide Convention. A lot of people are unaware there is moves of foot internationally to expedite a case with the genocide convention to be filed with the UN. This could happen uh, any day, any week now. If that's the case, it's going to force it's going to force a vote in the UN Security Council or at the UN level. We'll see how that pans out. But uh, these countries are duty-bound by their own domestic laws because they've ratified this convention. We're going to talk to Sam Husseini about that. Hopefully in the first hour, we'll try to connect him. And also in the second hour, we're going to be joined by author and I would say also peace activist, really looking at her work. Trish Wood is going to be joining us in the second hour. Really looking forward to that conversation. She's written some provocative pieces recently. Plus, we're going to talk about her work and her books as well and how this relates to the current events today. Fantastic guest. I'm really looking forward to this conversation in the second hour with Trish. Now, if you've been living under a rock this weekend, you probably would have missed the important news, and it looks like things are heating up. The United States is planning to expand the war. Okay, this happened over the weekend. The United States is deploying its major naval assets to the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aden, the Babo Mendeb Straits. Yes, that's right. The Yemeni resistance have gotten the attention of Washington now, and the United States has been forced to react. They've announced that they're forming a coalition, coalition of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, of course, the United States military, and a few other partners are going to be joining in this so-called coalition uh, to basically keep the seas, the high seas, free uh, from what they call uh, attacks and piracy. But in reality, what is this? This is the answer of Allah, the, or the Houthis, as they call them in the West. They're basically interdicting what they consider to be ships that are either Israeli, Israeli-owned, or supplying Israel. And they've made their statement pretty clear out of Sana'a. They've said that they'll keep doing this until the genocide in Gaza stops or until there's a ceasefire called and the violence is brought to a halt. Otherwise, they're going to keep going with this. So listen, they've also made uh, statements publicly, uh, their leadership, in response to what they're going to do to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates should they should they uh, engage militarily uh, with the Yemeni resistance on this. And should they block their efforts uh, to try to disrupt the Israeli war effort, as they consider it to be? Um, so that means a restarting of the war, this hard-fought truce that's been negotiated uh, between Yemen, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and the dirty war against Yemen. The United States is backing that war under Barack Obama, then under Trump for nine years, then under Biden. So it's, it's actually been going through three presidential terms. 
So anyway, uh, that's all threatened to be thrown out the window uh, should the United States and its new coalition act against Yemen. So this is kind of a serious thing. What is, this could easily spiral into World War III. Why? Because it's not going to end with the Bab al-Mandeb Straits. It's going to spread to the Gulf, to the well, to the Persian Gulf, but more specifically, the Straits of Hormuz. Now, this will invariably draw in the Iranians should that happen. But those are the stakes right now. Is the United States ready to open up a whole other front? Are they going to engage militarily? Are they going to be launching airstrikes off the deck of these aircraft carriers uh, at targets within Yemen? This is the big question. So imagine that. You've got a proxy war going on in Ukraine. They're fully committed, trying to scare up, I don't know, $100 billion or something like that to fund that war effort. Then they've pledged another $100 plus billion to Israel. They want to pledge more money to Taiwan as well for their proxy war against China. So the United States said it's ready to, front a th ready to fight a three-front war. But is it ready to fight a four-front war or five-front war? Because this isn't going to end with the Babel Mendeb Straits and the Red Sea. This is going to mean the United States gonna to have to defend its positions in Syria, its illegal occupied positions. They've got at least 20, between 20 and 40 military facilities that are manned or partially manned in northeastern Syria, completely illegal, supposedly to fight ISIS. Nobody believes that but people in the US. And they're working together with their Kurdish proxies, another proxy war, to keep Syria unstable. Israel's also involved in this. They're providing timely airstrikes against Syrian forces and any Iranian special forces that are assisting them in retaking uh, their, their rightful uh, territory in that country against all these various and sundry rebels and moderate rebels and Al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, fighters that have been pushed uh, into Syria by the Western powers, armed and supported for the most part by the United States and its allies. So that could all come crashing down, and it could all end in tears, especially in Iraq. The United States' position is quite precarious there. And the Iraqi legislature has passed a law or resolution, not sure which, but passed through their uh, parliament, uh, which states that the United States needs to leave Iraq. So they finally said, hey, it's over. Are you guys going to stay here forever? This isn't Okinawa. This isn't Stuttgart. We don't want you here forever. That's the that's what the Iranians want. The United States is not leaving, though. They're saying, no, 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 we need to stay here to fight ISIS. It's funny that ISIS was almost extinct until the United States upped their presence in Syria. And then all of a sudden, ISIS comes back. Isn't that interesting, the correlation between the U.S. deployments and the rise of ISIS? Did you ever notice that strange correlation? So maybe if the United States left the Middle East, then ISIS would also disappear. Probably yes. Probably yes. It's not because ISIS is just fighting the United States. No, the United States supports ISIS. They give it a reason to exist. And through the back door, they're probably supporting it in various ways, at least logistically in terms of how they're able to move, marshal, and draw uh, attention to and from wherever those positions are. Because at the end of the day, ISIS is a useful tool for Washington, for Britain, for the Anglo-Americans, for the globalists. It, they, they keep areas unstable. That's the purpose of ISIS. And uh, if you think that they're just uh, a lone actor working on their own volition, trying to establish a caliphate, uh, I've got a bridge. I've got a bridge to sell you. Maybe we'll build a bridge.
build a bridge somewhere. Listen, so anyway, that's that's a big story. So keep an eye on that. Uh, what's happening right now in the Arabian Sea, in the Red Sea, in the Babel Mendeb Straits, the Gulf of Aden, this is the key choke point for global trade. So if this closes, if this closes, if there's no trade going through, and already some major carging, cargo and shipping organizations have announced that they're going to be ceasing uh, traffic through this very busy area. This is actually the busiest area on the planet. If there's a major disruption in trade and all the things that go through there, including energy to Europe, that's going to mean bad news for the European economy. Okay, because they're going to be they're going to be the worst hit. They're, they'll be the worst hit. Then Egypt will be hit badly as well, uh, as will uh, other countries. Turkey will be also hit badly by this, as will other countries. Even Russia, to some extent, is going to suffer uh, for this. But mainly Europe, mainly Europe. And isn't that funny? How convenient that the United States might this might actually help the U.S. because Qatar ships a lot of liquefied natural gas through that very area into the Mediterranean Sea, makes its way to Europe and to the U.K., okay? That's to replace the gas that Russia is not allowed to supply Europe because of sanctions and the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline. So think about that. If Qatari gas is disrupted going into Europe and feeding that market, that's going to mean more gas demand from the United States, from the fracking industry, from LNG, cha-ching, cha-ching. Can you see the payday here for the United States? So for Washington, I think they're very happy about this. And it will also damage the European economy. This is another policy of Washington, which is to knock down the European economy, make it more dependent on the United States for cheap finance and, of course, overpriced energy coming across the Atlantic. Knocking down Europe, knocking Germany down, getting those industries, those key industries to leave Europe, to relocate in the United States and in other countries, maybe even flee to China. This is already happening. From Germany, for instance, the Netherlands, they're all having this brain drain, this corporate drain, leaving Europe just because it's too expensive, the energy's too much, the economy is toast, and the United States has got it right under its thumb, okay, thanks to Ursula von der Leyen and other functionaries in Brussels. Bad news for Europe. And I think Washington's much, much, much happy about that. They should be unhappy. No, they're happy. This is all part of a continuation of something that already began a few years ago. And we saw that with Ukraine. This will this will also hurt damage Europe pretty badly. So we'll see how they watch Washington on this. Watch how they react. It's gonna be very interesting. Watch closely what Washington's positions are on this. They want to keep the instability going, or do they want to end it? The fast way to end it is to call for a ceasefire, stop sending bombs and missiles and weapons to Israel, stop the genocide. That would end all this. But that's mm, maybe not what Washington wants. Let's let's watch closely and see. Let's take a break right now with TNT, today's news talk. Patrick Kennings, your host, will connect Sam Husseini on the other side. Looking forward to this conversation, all this and more. We'll be right back. 
TNT Radio's James Freeman. We have new revised figures from the Office for National Statistics showing that legal, that's not illegal, that's legal, net migration to the UK has witnessed one of the largest increases on record. Three quarters of a million additional people are now living in the UK in the space of just one year. A huge number that comes just three years after we left the European Union. Now, I didn't vote for Brexit because of immigration. I voted because of democracy, but millions did vote because they think too many people are coming into the country, which makes what the government has allowed to happen an absolute two fingers up to the people and democracy. Another example, if we needed another, of how the government does the exact opposite to what the people want and vote for. The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations. It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home. That's 40 California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a $1,000 a day fine. Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence. The mortality rate from the virus was 0.2%. You know, 99.8% survival, rather than the three or 4% mortality that the, the people are saying at the time. The culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been, not only do you obey government, but you honor government. Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church. The hypocrisy of letting people riot it helped us all understand one thing. This is not what they say it is. By meeting, we're testifying the government has no jurisdiction here. I was arrested and driven to a maximum security prison. The government has obviously uh, turned up the heat on churches. My daddy. (laughs) When the churches fall silent, the only religion left is the state. We needed to make a biblical statement because we always put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. LA County threatened Pastor John MacArthur with jail time and arrest. We were going to be sued. They wanted Grace Church shut down. We wanted to go on the offensive and attack the health order as unconstitutional. This wasn't about health and safety. This was all about control and opposition to religious freedom. As the government gets more corrupt and more corrupt, snitches get rewards. Its totalitarian control has to increase. And you have to have a mask on. And as they shut down any attacks against them. This is not about freedom or personal choice. The last thing standing is going to be the church. A hoax about carbon dioxide in the climate has caused a global energy and economic disaster. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio.
All right, welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. This is hour number one of the broadcast. Thank you guys for joining us. A big thank you to everybody in the TNT chat community. Great to see you guys uh, in there mixing it up. We've had really good numbers uh, late in the week, so really appreciate everybody coming in there. Great place to be. Of course, you can listen on the live stream. If you're driving, I hope you guys are listening to the audio stream don't be tempted by the video stream as colorful and enticing as it is. You don't want to be watching video while you're driving in traffic for obvious reasons. I just want to throw that out there because there's it's bad enough with SMS text messaging, but add video to that. I know you love your TNT, but uh, definitely stick to the audio streams there. You can watch the video streams, however, live on Rumble, uh, also on YouTube and other finer video sharing platforms as we proliferate across the internet in Technicolor. Thank you guys also for watching TNT. Now, on the line right now, we're going to pivot to the United States. Uh, we're going to go on the ground to Washington, D.C., connect with independent journalist and also a State Department correspondent, Sam Hussein. He's joining us on the live link right now. Sam, how are you? Good to be with you, Patrick. Thank you. It's great to be with you as well, and uh, things are uh, heating up, uh, to say the least, over the weekend, uh, Sam. I want to talk about uh, what we, we introduced last week, which was the genocide convention. Now, you were just introducing this idea, and I think uh, it looks like a lot more people seem to be campaigning on this. There seems to be some energy. I want to talk about that, but before we do that, I wanted to also get your comment the United States has become uh, a little bit concerned over the weekend about the Yemeni resistance forces that have been interdicting ships that they believe are either owned by Israel or carrying fuel or goods that are uh, supporting the Israeli uh, war effort against the Palestinian people in Gaza. Now, this has caused a little bit of a crisis. They're putting together a coalition featuring Saudi Arabia, the UAE. The United States seems to be wanting to, uh, I don't know, tackle this problem in some way, but it's still very vague. So my question to you, Sam, is do you think the United States is drifting into uh, another quagmire here uh, in, in the Babel Mandeb Straits? And more widely, this could uh, easily spread to the Straits of Hormuz. But uh, what are your sort of observations on this latest development? Um, it, it is a potential, um, you know, flashpoint for a wider war. Um, I'm, I'm always a little leery of using the word quagmire um, because so often I think, um, you know, people talk about, you know, the Afghan war, the Iraq war, and so on being quagmires when, you know, I, I think a large part of the U.S. establishment wasn't happy with how what well, wasn't unhappy with how they turned out right they made a lot of money and they destabilized a bunch of countries that they didn't like um and you know so it's not always uh you know a, a bad outcome when there's increased uh, increased violence but it, it could actually threaten u.s interests the yemeni um uh, leader of the Houthis, uh, I think, just released a statement either late yesterday or early today, basically saying if um, the Saudis and other Arab states um, join such a coalition against them as they are um, quite effectively, apparently, cutting off um, shipping to Israel. You, you've had a number of uh, shipping major shipping companies uh, basically saying we're not we're cutting off ties to all Israel-related 
um, uh, activity in firms and so on. So that that I mean, <laughs> this this activity by the um, Houthis seems to have actually had a detrimental effect towards Israel in terms of um, various companies uh, cutting off ties um, to Israel. But the um, Houthi leader basically said, "We will directly attack um, any country." Um, including, say, Saudi Arabia, that takes part in such a coalition um, against us. Um, so you you could see uh, a, a massive escalation of the Yemeni-Saudi war, including targeting uh, Saudi oil facilities, for example, uh, which could obviously have you know major repercussions economically, uh, globally, even more than you know what, what what the Houthis are doing in terms of the uh, uh, shipping and so on so um you know uh, so I, that that that's the state of it as far as as far as i understand it um so it could be an, you know it could lead to an uh, acceleration uh, an escalation uh, of war um or or you could see the u.s you know either backing off or finding some other way to get at the houthis other than an all-out strike or using some other mechanism of attacking them other than to use their Arab, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, client states or uh, whatnot. Yeah, and the U.S. even floated out the uh, the the possibility of striking uh, Yemen or what they call the Yemeni group. I mean, Sam, haven't we uh, been through this for nine, almost nine years now? This war on Yemen, right. uh, and uh, <laughs> with all they've thrown at Yemen over nine years, it seems like the Yemeni resistance fighters have only gotten stronger and increased their capabilities, their adaptivity, not gotten weaker. Right. I, I I don't see how this is going to be very productive for the u.s it just doesn't seem like you know it's it it doesn't have really good good odds of succeeding yeah again you know um it could be detrimental to all u.s sectors but um you know my, the point that i was making earlier was just simply that it could be beneficial for um either geopolitically or um you know weapons making uh, uh uh, sector, for example, that they, they they could see a drawn out war against Yemen as a net positive from their demented point of view. Um, so, um, but you know, it, it could have you know devastating consequences. Um, in other ways, it certainly will be bad for for the region, um, and it'll you know kill a lot of innocent civilians. But that's not always something that the U.S. establishment cares about. And in terms of the geopolitics of the region, I mean, how how does the Arab world view Yemen? Um, th th they seem to be of this, so you know, the axis of resistance groups and countries. They seem to be the only one, and putting the GCC aside, who, who's actually taking direct action on behalf of the Palestinians. So, I, I, am I am I right in assuming that the Arab street is is supporting Yemen, regards it as uh, somebody who's doing something, you could say, but maybe governments and leadership are a little bit worried or trepidatious about what uh, Yemen is doing here. How, how's this viewed across the Arab world? Do you think? Well, um, it's hard to know for certain. Um, I haven't seen seen any polling um, on this, but. I mean, in general, you have a massive schism between Arab governments, which, you know, might rhetorically say something for the Palestinians or even, 
you know, withdraw an ambassador or something like that um, from Israel, but ultimately don't really do anything uh, to stop Israel or to stand up to the U.S. Uh, versus the, um, you know, Arab public, which is extremely uh, disgusted and critical and anguished um, uh, about Israel's slaughter in, um, in Gaza. So, um, uh, I think it's a fairly safe bet to think that the general Arab public um, is very much behind the Houthis in what they're doing. Um, um, I, I wasn't sure what your reference to the GCC was. I mean, uh, I mean, they're, they're, you know, the Gulf Cooperation Council, if anything, has been pro-U.S. Uh, unless I missed something. I mean, the the other obvious, you know, um, player in this is Hezbollah, um, which has been, you know, fighting Israel, though. You know, uh, I mean, some people thought that they would be more engaged um, earlier on in the current um, war. Um, but they, you know, I mean, you know, Nasrallah has basically made statements to the effect that, you know, we are in a basically low level war with Israel at this point, And our main contribution is to draw half the Israeli army to the north. Uh, that is to the Israeli-Lebanese border, so that Israel is fundamentally fighting Hamas with one hand tied behind their backs, and Hamas is obviously trying to emulate um, now what Hezbollah did in 2006, where they basically drove Israel out of southern Lebanon using the same sort of, you know, guerrilla tactics, um, you know, using, uh, you know, small rockets to take out tanks. Um, and to you know, kill as many Israeli um, invading soldiers as possible. Um, but yeah, the, the, this Yemeni dimension is is a wholly new thing as far as I know. Um, and it, you know, it could either increase the squeeze that Israel feels to compel it to stop, or it could you know escalate into um, you know further uh, further violence throughout the region. And of course, the the the, the Houthi uh, and so Allah leadership has said that look, we're going to keep doing this until the killing stops in Gaza. So it seems to me the shortest distance between two lines, of course, would be to for the U.S. and their allies to want to have a ceasefire. It doesn't look exactly. like that's going to happen. But so if they're not going to do this voluntarily, that brings us to the big question, Sam, uh, which is. What other ways uh, could uh, efforts be done politically or internationally to try to get to that ceasefire? Because it doesn't seem like the International Criminal Court is a viable option at this point based on the actions of Kareem Khan uh, and the people in charge of that organization. But you're talking about and campaigning and raising awareness for another option, which is the invoking of the Genocide Convention. So just walk us through this again, because I think this is actually potentially a very practical, a very practical route to get a result. But go ahead, Sam. Exactly. Um, the Genocide Convention um, is signed by virtually every nation, including Israel. And what virtually any nation that is a signatory could do, and arguably is, should do under the treaty, is if you see a genocide, you report it. Um, uh, and specifically under Article 9 of the treaty, um, you can report it to the International Court of Justice. 
Uh, this is a different body from the International Criminal Court, um, which hasn't done anything uh, against Israel in all of its years. Um, even though it did things like, uh, you know, it issued arrest warrants for Putin, even though Russia isn't a signatory, nor is Ukraine. Uh, now, Israel isn't a signatory to the ICC, um, uh, but uh, Palestine is. Um, so you would think that, that the ICC would do something, but they have not done anything uh, other than photo ops. Um, uh, the International Court of Justice, on the other hand, has ruled against Israel in the past in an advisory opinion. In 2004, um, it ruled against Israel's wall. Um, so there, there's obviously some sense of fairness um, there and some activity. Um, uh, what you, but this would be different. Invoking the genocide convention there uh, would um, activate an emergency process and could well produce a judgment, not an advisory opinion, a judgment against Israel with a cease and desist order from the from the International Court of Justice, also known as the World Court, um, uh, which is the you know the primary judicial organ of uh, the United Nations. It doesn't deal with individuals. It settles disputes between states. Um, and, uh, for example, Francis Boyle, a uh, prominent international lawyer at the University of Illinois, um, successfully represented Bosnia um, in this forum um, uh, against uh, Serbia um, and succeeded in, um, he tells me, in three weeks um, in getting a cease and desist order from the world court um, telling Serbia to, to cease and desist. Um, this, you know, I mean, the, the, the world court doesn't have an army um, to, you know, implement its rulings. And, you know, the U.S. would almost certainly, you know, stop and try to stop anything using its veto with the U.N. Security Council. But given the high level um, of awareness on this issue, um, and uh, the already, you know, you know, uh, isolated position of the U.S. Um, having a world court ruling that Israel is guilty of genocide and it must cease and desist, and the U.S. sitting there again trying to veto something at the U.N. Um, could well be a breaking point uh, for what the U.S. establishment could try to get away with here if they do do that and israel continues to proceed in its uh, slaughter um then uh, the, you the un general assembly to, can take up things and it can do a number of things at that point using this world court order um it could suspend israel from activities uh at the united nations which was done against yugoslavia um and was also done against south africa um it could um, uh, institute a tribunal um, uh, similar to the tribunal that was set up in the case of Yugoslavia. Uh, that was set up before the ICC uh, to go after individuals, the Yugoslav tribunal. Um, the General Assembly could set up a similar tribunal um, to go after uh, Israeli uh, officials. Um, and, and, you know, since the ICC will not do so now, all of this, you know, the, the world, uh, world court ruling, 
the General Assembly taking further steps will additionally put tremendous pressure on other things, including the ICC. Uh, so the International Criminal Court, which has not done a thing for the Palestinians in all of these years, could finally be pressured um, into into doing something substantial. As it is, I get the sense that the ICC is going to do something like um, you know, issue arrest warrants for Hamas officials and maybe as a token gesture against right-wing Israeli settlers. You know, uh, that seems to me, this, this, this part of what I'm saying is kind of just a, you know, an, an estimate um, uh, of, of where the ICC is going uh, unless we, you know, get real action from the world court or, you know, some other significant action. So that so that's the mech the mechanism would be once the judgment is rendered that cease and desist order that you mentioned, then that trigger mm -hmm. that could trigger a, a UN General Assembly uh, move uh, to form a tribunal. Is it would that is that how the mechanism works? It's 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 it has that has not been done before, but it would open that door. I mean, I mean, I think that what we're seeing is you know, the, you know, the the world coming to grips with how do we stand up to U.S. dominance here? And, you know, part of that is the emergence of BRICS, and, you know, that, that's got an assortment of pluses and minuses to it, in my view. Um, but, you know, what are and how do we use legal mechanisms to assert, you know, the, the, the view of humanity uh, rather than simply allowing the, the U.S. to dictate. So that would be one new mechanism, but it would be tremendously aided in, I mean, right now, the U.N. General Assembly has put forward these resolutions overwhelmingly for a ceasefire, but there's no action involved in it. Um, now, um, you, I mean, you could even have, so I'm saying that, you know, initial actions would be a tribunal and a, um, uh, and a suspension of Israel. Um, uh, there could be, you know, additional action. You could have the General Assembly authorizing member states to take um, economic uh, and potentially even military uh, efforts, the same way that the UN Security Council has done. You know, um, you know, that's why they invaded Iraq. They said, I mean, the UN didn't say we're going to invade Iraq. They said we authorize member states. Um, as I'm talking about 2000, in um, 1990, uh, we authorized member states to take um, uh, measures to force Iraq out of Kuwait. Um, you could have a UN General Assembly resolution that does that. Now, I don't know what member states are going to do that, but you, you know, it, it, you're, you're starting to open the door to um, the general um, global uh, structures to uh, stand up. Now, what's needed on all of this to initiate this is a state to invoke the Genocide Convention at the World Court. That hasn't been done. No state, incredibly, has come forward and said, we will do this. There have been a number of pieces advocating this. Uh, Ambassador Craig Murray um, has written a number of pieces advocating this, and he's gone to several meetings in Geneva with these diplomats, and none of them uh, in his um, uh, meetings, he writes in you know extraordinary detail about this, none of them say this is a bad idea or we don't think that this will work. They, they're just scared to do it. They think that it might work, 
and they seem to be scared that the United States and or Israel will, you know, retaliate in some way um, against them for doing so. Um, you've had other uh, people, other, uh, Chief Mandela, uh, the grandson of uh, Nelson Mandela, just wrote a piece in South Africa excoriating um, the, um, uh, the South African cabinet um, for uh, not taking heed of what the parliament in South Africa has said um, and uh, for coddling Israel, basically. like they, they issue statements and they recall their ambassador but they have not either completely cut off diplomatic ties or invoked the Genocide Convention. So there's a whole series of countries that have called what Israel is doing genocide. Colombia, Algeria, uh, Iran, of course, um, but none of them have actually invoked the Genocide Convention. And this is all the more troubling because, you know, the Genocide Convention said, says that all of the signers of it endeavor to prevent genocide. So technically it should be invoked even before a genocide is occurring. That is, if you're seeing the signs that a genocide is about to occur, you're supposed to prevent it if you're a signer to this treaty. And the most obvious way to do that is to invoke the treaty and to sue Israel and say, you can't do this. You must cease and desist this activity, uh, which you know either is perpetrating genocide or is about to perpetrate genocide. No nation has yet done this, including nation after nation. It's my latest piece on my substack, my second to latest piece on my substack, where I like go through all of these countries that have called it genocide, but have not yet invoked the treaty. So I think it's incumbent upon journalists, activists, groups, and so on to be petitioning and you know, members of parliament um, uh, around the world who are particularly brave to go out there and say, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we using every legal mechanism we possibly can um, in order to stop what Israel is doing? And just, just the last, the last question on this, Sam, is that people are asking who, who would be theoretically the key person in any particular government or state in the world that would actually, you know, hand that uh, final document over or file that with the court is is it a particular minister or does it vary from country to country what what about that part of it um i i assume it would be the prime minister or the foreign minister of any country that would file it um i mean I, i've seen some of the filings that francis boyle did on behalf of bosnia um i mean i think that what they just simply you know said he's their representative at the world court he's their lawyer um, and th that he filed the papers and they, you know, went through things and they had uh, uh, a trial. Interestingly enough, Boyle actually went up against an Israeli lawyer who was representing uh, Yugoslavia at the time. Uh, and he beat him and they rendered a judgment uh, for uh, the, that uh, Yugoslavia had to cease and desist. So I think it's a fairly straightforward matter to do it. Um, it's just simply the political will um, to um, to do it. Um, oh, and I should say, because, you know, we were talking at Yemen before um, and all, all this that the Houthis are doing. They, the, the Houthis, they control a substantial part of Yemen, obviously can, you know, you know, affect shipping lanes and so on. But they don't control the, the UN seat. Um, they, they are not the quote unquote recognized government. Um, 
uh, of Yemen. So they, at this stage, cannot do this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, but any other country can, um, including Palestine. Um, now, Israel would probably say, you know, Palestine's not a state. Um, and they can't do this, but they are a signatory to the treaty. So I think that would fall apart. But ideally, it would be done not just by Palestine. You, you would have multiple states. For example, in the case of uh, Myanmar, there's a pending case invoking the Genocide Convention. Um, and it was initiated, I think, by Gambia. Um, and then uh, several EU states and Canada joined in. So you could have multiple states join in such such an effort, which might be ideal because, you know, if countries are afraid of reprisal by the United States, um, it might be ideal if you had, you know, you know, Colombia and Malaysia um, and, you know, Chad or, and, and Algeria, you, you might be, you know, best if you had a constellation of countries or you could just simply have one country and then other countries join in. Um, but it just needs to be done. And it's kind of astounding to me that it's, you know, I, I mean, uh, that, that it's taken, you know, as long as it has given, given the states and given the statements. Okay. So this is interesting. I think I'm going to encourage people to, to follow the work of Sam Husseini. You want to be following him on X Twitter, uh, as well. We're tagged him on our show post. If you follow at 21 wire, but also Sam Husseini's Substack. if you want to get more details about what we're talking about here, especially with the invoking of the genocide convention. I know there's a quite a few people that are interested in this right now. Some of whom are listening. They DM'd me before the show. They knew that you were going to be coming on Sam to talk about this so there's more information available and i think there's going to be more done on this in the coming days and weeks so you want to keep an eye on this certainly we're going to be doing that as well sam husseini independent journalist based in washington dc we really appreciate you joining us on tnt this week thank you so much patrick and there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Sam Husseini. Again, we'll drop the links in the TNT chat community as well. In the meantime, let's take a quick break here with the network, and we'll be back after these short messages. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Well, there they go again. 147 Republicans voting in favor of extending the unconstitutional FISA Section 702, which the federal government uses to spy on American citizens, is part of the National Defense Authorization Act. And you'll hear the usual complaints. Well, we don't really like that. Well, we had to pass it. We couldn't just say no. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a military. They always have an excuse, don't they? Why don't you try saying no just for once? See what it feels like. Democrats aren't going to allow us not to have a military. They make too much money off of it. Come on. What we need is 147 staunch America first patriots with the organizational, oratorical, and let's face it, the fundraising skills to throw their hat in the ring and primary these 147 Republicans. Let's show them who's boss. We the people. Come on. We need to do better. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. The challenges our planet's animals are facing sometimes feel a bit heavy. The animals haven't eaten in a day, two days. They haven't drank anything. They're cold, they're dehydrated. But remember, there's good happening right now. 
at home. All right, we were able to get into your unit, and we have all four of your cats. So, uh... Okay. And around the world for any animal, any disaster. Search ifa.org forward slash disaster ready. This is the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, ladies and gentlemen. All right, welcome back. Welcome back. We're here, back with you for the final segment here of the first hour of this live broadcast. That was a very informative segment with journalist Sam Hussein. He's a veteran journalist, also a State Department correspondent. You'll see him there uh, in the press room regularly. Some of his clips have gone viral. Of course, he's one of those people asking the hard questions there at State. We're very uh, privileged to be able to talk to him, uh, at least on a regular basis to find out what's really going on. We'll delve more into the inside baseball of Biden's foreign policy disaster. At least that's what it's turning out to be. Everybody kind of agrees this is a kind of rudderless administration when it comes to foreign policy. But uh, they seem to have staked everything. They've seemed to have staked everything, the farm, the country, the economic fortunes of the country, even the Democratic Party itself. They've staked it all in Ukraine, this project called Ukraine. In truth, this project called Ukraine stretches all the way back into the Obama administration. So when you hear 10% for the big guy, you're not just talking about Joe Biden, you're talking about Barack Obama as well. He's tied into this definitely intimately involved based on a lot of the information we found out from Hunter Biden's laptops. That information is publicly available. Just follow Marco Polo, 501c3 at uh, Twitter, xtwitter.com. Listen to a great space yesterday with Kim.com hosting and Marco Polo's Garrett was on there and really just kind of telling people what they've done in terms of research and parsing out all of the emails on Hunter Biden's laptop. And within that is, it is such a big story. It, it touches all sorts of areas in terms of uh, different countries, international finance, money laundering. The Bidens were involved in everything. And that's clear. And what's really crazy about this story, and we'll, we'll be covering more about this in the coming weeks because it's it's definitely starting to heat up now. And we want to get through some of that material, include, including bring on some of the experts who are intimately involved uh, in this case too. But what's clear to me is that the United States, the level of corruption in the U.S., it's so funny, the parallels with Ukraine. Because as you go into bed and you try to use what what nah, let's be honest a lot of people regard ukraine as the most one of the most corrupt countries if not the most corrupt country in the world it's certainly been up there on the index according to all the ngos that uh police and uh, audit this sort of activity but anyway having said that with the u.s administration so deeply involved via joe biden and the biden family crime syndicate how else can we describe it they're doing deals in china they're working ukraine there's bunch of Romania as well, there's all sorts of these offshore locations. The Bidens were selling access for a stake in businesses. So when you're getting involved with these corrupt entities and countries, that makes your government potentially exposed to becoming corrupt as well because birds of a feather flock together. And that's exactly what happened to the United States government. They were so intent on using this opportunity anyway to use Ukraine as an ATM machine to suck money out of it, basically, and maybe achieve some of their geopolitical and some of the deep state security uh, CIA ends to that story, sure. But everybody seemed to be having their hands in the cookie jar on this. And it, it turned the United States into a corrupt banana republic backwater type uh, outfit. And let me explain how. 
you, the level of corruption is at its ultimate peak when the government itself is engaged in that corruption, but that's not bad enough. What's worse is that when people are exposing it, like journalists, like the, the team at Marco Polo, when they're actually exposing that corruption and doing it in the most transparent way, after all, this is open source material. All they did was help organize and collate it and bring some context to it. And they're getting attacked by all the different U.S. government agencies and all their various proxies. So when you have the government weaponizing its own law enforcement agencies and other government agencies to bring down, to attack, to bankrupt, to ruin people that are just exposing the corruption in government, then you have, uh, you're no better than Ukraine. Because that's exactly what's going on in Ukraine, as we've also exposed at 21st Century Wire, if you look at our top-pinned feature there, talking about uh, uh, Alexander uh, Dubinsky, a key figure there, along with Andre Durkash, who exposed Biden corruption and the Biden's involvement in Ukraine with Poroshenko and others. Okay, and They've been targeted. They've been incarcerated. There's threats made on their life. They've been, there's people who, who have spoken out about this have been assassinated, okay? So the United States government is acting in a similar fashion as the corrupt Ukrainian regime. And this is when things go horribly south for any country. It's totally unsustainable. You can't weaponize government to attack the opposition, especially if the opposition is exposing factual corrupt, corruption that you can factually prove, okay? That's exactly what's happened. And it literally, it's so bad that the, the the current government's foreign policy is crafted in such a way as to keep this 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 insane war going in Ukraine because the minute it stops and their guy is no longer in control of the archives and the judiciary and everybody who could potentially talk but are afraid to talk at the present moment in Ukraine then that will affect not just the Ukrainian deep state and the power structure and all their corrupt oligarchs and so forth. It'll bring down the Democratic Party establishment, just like that. Make no mistake about it, that's what this is all about. This isn't just about Ukraine or the Zelensky regime. No, this, this will bring down the entire Democratic U.S. establishment. It'll ruin the Democratic Party in a way that the Republicans were ruined uh, for a period of time after Watergate. Okay, turned out to be not that long. <laughs> so they just reinvented themselves. Maybe the Democrats could do that as well, maybe for the better. But the fact remains that the level of corruption here is off the scales. In fact, if you want to talk about involvement in, in, with foreign entities, and the potential that the current U.S. president is compromised where other foreign countries and actors can blackmail the current U.S. president, the most compromised and corrupt president possibly in the history of the United States. That's exactly what we're looking at here. And this is what you're seeing now with the, the efforts to uh, get the Biden impeachment hearings going. All of this is, a lot of this is based on the information on Hunter Biden's laptop. Okay. It's not, it's not like, you know, difficult to work out. It's fairly accessible. You can go access a lot of the material. It's available online. 
So all the members of Congress have done is pull it together. And they've actually found out there's a lot more in there than they even thought at first. And it's connecting to all sorts of people, agencies, entities, and so forth. So a lot of Americans would be shocked by what they found in there. I mean, I can't even look at that report. I mean, it's bad. It's really bad. I mean, just aside from the lurid images of, of Hunter Biden and then now finding out uh, the sums of money that he was pulling out of ATM machines and spending on vice in the millions, in the millions, while he was selling access to his father uh, to Chinese businesses connected with Chinese intelligence, Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian interests as well, oligarchs there. And that brings us back to Ukraine, uh, Igor Kolomoisky, who's currently incarcerated in Ukraine, this is the oligarch. This was the person, one of the people who bankrolled the whole Zelensky uh, empire, the media empire and the servant of the People Party and involved in all sorts of various aspects of, of Ukraine and Ukrainian society. And this person is now incarcerated, but is being held by, if I'm not mistaken, by the intelligence services and not in general population to protect him. So this is interesting. This man could bring the whole thing down. He knows where all the bodies are buried. And certainly he knows where all Biden's money went. Joe Biden and Hunter Biden is much bigger than Burisma. It's much, much bigger. And the sums of money are much bigger than even than that we have on fire with Burisma. Also, when the FBI source the 1023s and $5 million bribes, five for Hunter, five for Joe, it's much bigger than that. There's also the reverse gas scandal where they're pinching gas off Russia and then also re getting gas uh, at, at a severely discounted rate uh, and then just creating a whole laundering scheme uh, with natural gas, really printing money for nothing. That's what they were doing. And did Joe Biden get a cut of that? Well, Certainly, there's people who believe that he did. There might be evidence to that effect. We'll be able to see all the evidence. Who knows? Who knows? But not as long as the current president is in power in Ukraine. So there's a lot riding on this. Would the U.S. be so craven and crass as to have a war, to, to continue a war just to protect the political legacy of the Democratic Party, of Joe Biden, or the, the coming election? Would they be that craven? Would they be that crass to do that? Are they that corrupt? Send all those Ukrainians to die in the trenches? Really? Just to protect protect the political legacies, the, the, the U.S. establishment? Are they that bad? That's the question. I think you guys are beginning to figure out what the answer is to that. It's not very pleasant, is it? We'll talk about other things. Uh, we've got a couple of big stories we want to break uh, after the top of the hour news headlines that are coming up right after this. We're also be pleased to be welcoming to the stage our guest, Trish Wood, investigative journalist. We're going to talk about her book, her work, and what's going on in the world. Looking forward to that. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. This is TNT, today's news talk. See you in a few. <laughs> 